back to Lightshed Research, a podcast that puts our research notes in your ears for your convenience. March 9th, 2021. Ten more questions for Verizon's Investor Day. In late January, we posed nine questions for Verizon's Q4 earnings call. We won't rehash those questions in this note, although most remain unanswered. We have 10 additional questions ahead of tomorrow's Investor Day, including a few from media guru Rich Greenfield. We will start our numbering at 10 and treat this as an update to our last note. Number 10. When will the first C-band market launch? Verizon has effectively answered any questions about its longer-term mid-band spectrum needs after buying 160 MHz of C-band spectrum depth. Execution is now critical. Many investors expect at least one market to deploy C-band spectrum in 2021, and will be looking to tomorrow's event for affirmation of this optimistic expectation. Verizon should also describe what a C-band deployment means in the context of coverage, download speeds, and depth of spectrum used. It will also be important to learn when Verizon can expand C-band coverage to 100 and 200 million pops, given the disappointing early performance of millimeter wave spectrum and DSS technology. Number 11. Why didn't you buy more A-block spectrum? It was no surprise that Verizon would emerge as the largest bidder in the C-band auction. It has the most customers and the least amount of sub-6 gigahertz spectrum. However, it was surprising that Verizon didn't acquire more depth in the markets that would be cleared for use this year, also known as the A-block. Verizon won 60 megahertz of the 100 megahertz A-block that was available at auction. That's lower than the 80 megahertz that Verizon and others in the industry insisted was needed to achieve their 5G goals. Verizon's spectrum blocks will ultimately be realigned to allow it to achieve that goal, but that will take time as the bulk of Verizon's spectrum is not required to be cleared for three years. Did AT&T simply drive the price too high? Are there opportunities to aggregate C-band with adjacent CBRS spectrum to achieve 80 MHz or more? 12. What are your plans for CBRS spectrum? Verizon's CBRS strategy is unclear, despite spending $2 billion to buy priority access CBRS spectrum licenses last year. It did not buy a nationwide footprint of CBRS and won 40 MHz of spectrum depth in just 20% of the U.S. population. Verizon could supplement these priority licenses with adjacent general access CBRS spectrum, but using unlicensed spectrum seems more like a cable strategy than a Verizon one. Its comments about CBRS functionality have also changed. Verizon used to insist that CBRS is, quote, ideally suited for, like, really, really small cells or, quote, very dense outdoor deployments, close quote. But in early January, it changed its tune. Kyle Malady was quoted as saying, I think there were a lot of folks who thought our CBS would be in little small cells in cities, but that's not the case. We have it on macro sites as well. It would be helpful to get more clarity on these seemingly conflicting views, especially in the context of their limited purchases of CBRS. It would also be useful to get a clarification on whether Verizon could or would ever aggregate adjacent CBRS spectrum with its new C-band spectrum. 13. Will you bid in the 3.5 GHz auction? The FCC is planning on auctioning another 100 MHz of mid-band spectrum this year. This block is adjacent and just below the CBRS spectrum. Verizon just committed to $55 billion of spectrum purchases in the past year between C-band and CBRS auctions. However, 
more spectrum could be beneficial in the long term, especially if it augments Verizon's CBRS spectrum position. Verizon's bids could also prevent DISH or the cable operators from gaining low-cost access to this asset, especially if the spectrum screen continues to be ignored by the FCC. Number 14. When will 5G over DSS work better? DSS technology is important to us because we believe Verizon was positioned to outperform its peers in the early days of 5G had this DSS technology performed as described. We even authored a note on the topic. Our title was, quote, here's how Verizon could win 5G this fall, close quote. They didn't. We later learned that Verizon was not able to carry or aggregate 5G, the key technology requirement that we identified in that note. As for who ended up winning 5G this past fall, the results speak for themselves, and we believe the disappointing performance of DSS was partly to blame. Recent announcements by Qualcomm have led us to believe that DSS plus carrier aggregation will be enabled in its next round of Snapdragon chipsets and modems. Does this mean that older phones will never gain this functionality? We expect Apple to select those Qualcomm components for its next iPhone, but that cannot be assumed. It would therefore be helpful to receive a more comprehensive answer by Verizon about the timing and the component requirements to achieve carrier aggregation of 5G, and perhaps an update on the state of DSS. 15. Can you grow service revenue at 3% in 2022? Verizon's target of growing wireless service revenue by at least 3% in 2021 is not that ambitious. Wireless operators will see a resurgence in international roaming revenue, higher data plan usage, and possibly handset insurance revenue that negatively impacted last year's results due to COVID. Verizon also continues to benefit from the surge to higher tier rate plans resulting from its Disney relationship. The competitive environment in 2021 also remains somewhat tame. We don't expect T-Mobile or Dish to dial up their marketing engines until later in the year when both companies progress further on their respective 5G network deployments. The cable operators are admittedly wild cards, although Comcast did rattle its saber on its Q4 earnings call. We have a quote from Dave Watson that says, quote, we are committed to accelerating growth in mobile, close quote. 2022 is a different story, as subscribers in ARPU could be under pressure. We expect Verizon to lose postpaid phone subs in 2022 as T-Mobile hits full stride on its deep mid-band spectrum deployments and a likely increase in marketing activity. Dish will also likely be launching a slew of new markets. Even AT&T could execute on a more aggressive network investment plan after buying up A-Block C-band spectrum and on the heels of their successful first net investments. We also believe there is a diminishing marginal impact on the ability for Verizon's Disney partnership to stimulate migration to higher rate plans. Will Verizon go X growth in 2022, or do they lean into their ample 60% service margins to be more competitive for subs? Are either a good scenario for investors? Number 16, does Discovery Plus attract different subs to Verizon than Disney Bundle? Given Verizon's success with a free first year of Disney Plus that led to a year-two offer of the Disney Triple Play Bundle for specific unlimited tier subscribers, why did you also need to offer a free first year of Discovery Plus? Is a Discovery Plus consumer a distinct group from those interested in Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus? Should we assume that you will look for ways to keep Discovery Plus as a bundled benefit for unlimited tier subscribers after year one, as you did with Disney Plus, or was this intended to be a one-year promotion only? 
We are also curious whether bundling in streaming services such as Disney and Discovery led to meaningful usage of these SVOD services on your wireless devices. We sense the overwhelming majority of SVOD usage is still occurring on large screen devices, but curious if your partnerships result in above average engagement on mobile. Lastly, should we expect bundling of media services to go beyond video and music services? Examples, Disney, Discovery, and Apple Music. With gaming and interactive media experiences usage on mobile exploding, it would appear that partnerships with companies such as Roblox, Fortnite, Minecraft, etc. would all make strategic sense going forward. Lightshed's Brandon Ross wrote about Roblox premium subscriptions earlier this week. Number 17. Does video latency create headwinds for sports betting? One of the most exciting growth areas for the media industry today, especially sports media, is sports betting. We are seeing more and more states move towards legalization, enabling betting via mobile devices. Yet the video feeds available via streaming have meaningful latency, often 40 to 60 seconds, versus what a consumer is experiencing live in the stadium. While latency is irrelevant for bets made prior to the game, the future of in-game betting, especially in fast-moving sports, requires extremely low latency. If you are streaming an NFL game on Verizon's mobile apps, what does latency look like today, and how does that compare to the latency of watching the game on Verizon Fios TV? What solutions are you looking at to reduce latency? What does latency versus in-stadium live need to get down to for in-game betting to become realistic? Number 18. Why are you still in the Fios TV business? You have been one of the most vocal companies on the shift in consumer behavior away from the multi-channel bundle towards streaming services, with your wireless bundles, including Disney and Discovery, accelerating that transformation. In turn, why is Verizon even in the video packaging business? Verizon already offer Fios broadband subs the ability to take YouTube TV instead of Fios TV. Why not simply offer a few VMVPD choices and exit the MVPD business entirely? Is there any other rationale financially or strategically for continuing Fios TV? Given the low churn of Fios broadband, it is hard to see exiting Fios TV having a meaningful impact on churn going forward. Verizon Fios TV subscribers have already dropped 17% from a peak of 4.7 million subs to 3.9 million subs at the year-end 2020. With all the most compelling content, exports, shifting to streaming platforms outside the multi-channel bundle, How are you thinking about the contraction of your 3.9 million Fios TV subscriber base from here? 19. Any movement in the replacement cycle. COVID clearly had an incremental impact on the already six-year decline in the device upgrade rates of operators. Only AT&T saw an inversion to a shorter replacement cycle, primarily due to its generous upgrade offer. Now that Verizon stores are largely open and COVID cases are falling, is it reasonable to expect the upgrade rate to rise from last year's record low levels of 3.7% in Q1? As we progress through improved COVID conditions throughout 2021, how much do you expect the upgrade rate to rebound? Will you be more aggressive with the next iteration of iPhones, especially if your carrier aggregation challenges have been solved? Did COVID prove that distribution through bricks and mortar is still critical in the wireless industry? Here's a quick reminder of the nine questions that we asked ahead of the Q4 earnings call, most of them left unanswered. One, what is the three-year capital budget? Two, how many additional cell sites are needed to enable C-band spectrum? Three, what is your plan for Legato? Four, is subscriber growth necessary for revenue growth? Five, 
how much additional content is needed in premium plans. Six, more details on the new MVNO with Comcast and Charter. Seven, how many 5G home customers have signed up? Eight, has the strategy for track phone changed post-COVID? And nine, can we get an update on smart city efforts? Hopefully Verizon will address some of those questions and our new questions posed in today's note. Have a great week and we'll see you with more questions for AT&T and T-Mobile later.